chapter 1, verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoptions as sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us, in all wisdom and prudence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, this morning we want to leave here with a view of you and a view of ourselves. very different than what we have been told, many of us in the world growing up, and some in churches, some wherever. Lord, we're, we're blessed because your word says that we were created so that we can know you, understand you and believe who your word says that you are. And Lord, we, we pray in the name of Jesus for that knowing to take place, to know who you are. Not facts about you, Lord, although certainly they are important, but know you as El Shaddai, Almighty God. Perfect in justice, perfect in love. Our Savior, our Lord, our King, but amazingly, Lord, also our friend. How do we wrap our minds around all those things, Lord? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We pray Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us understanding and love towards you and each other this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. I will do what I do every year, a few weeks before the men's retreat and tell you men that you need to sign up 
And uh, we don't want to break the record for most men to sign up the last second, um, which every year it seems we, uh, we, we, we break a new record, career record. You know, I'm, I look at basketball and NFL stats all the time. There's a little thing behind a quarterback's uh, yardage for a game, career record. And I don't want to do that, not with men's retreat sign up. We have... Uh, Rob Verdian coming. He is a pastor from the Pacific Northwest. Can you imagine asking someone from the Pacific Northwest to become to the Atlantic Northeast? But uh, he has uh, just a wonderful message of, of, of power and love for us men. And uh, you know those guys from the Northwest, West, they're men's men. I mean, this guy, he's, he's a rugged dude, and, but he's also uh, really been used greatly by the Lord. When I first heard about going to a men's retreat, I said, no way, years and years ago. I'm not going to spend the weekend with a bunch of sweaty, ugly guys when I could be with my really nice smelling beautiful wife um, but uh, I'm just that type of guy like if, if, if it's me I'd just rather be you know hiking through the woods with my wife not with a whole bunch of guys but um, man I did it and I was so blessed and we've been blessed ever since but uh, men step outside yourselves sign up for the men's retreat We'll have a table in the back, is that right, after the service? Uh, right back there? Yeah. And so, uh, sign up. Please, we'll be blessed. That's in mid-November. Okay, so a few years back on our Sunday evening study through the Bible, uh, we were in the Song of Solomon. Now, you don't have to turn there, but um, there's a reason I'm opening up with it. We're in the Ephesians, but... Song of Solomon, written by King Solomon, a short book, only eight chapters. The book is about the relationship between Solomon, who is the king, and a woman referred to as the Shulamite, or Solomite woman. The book begins at a place in their relationship where Solomon is choosing her to be his wife. And Solomon and the Shulamite woman, um, a little over midway in the book, or somewhere around midway, they, they, they are married, they become husband and uh, wife. And the book is one of the many, many, many places in the Bible where the relationship between husband and wife represents the relationship between God and man. That's why marriage... Uh, Christians get really uptight when someone starts tampering with uh, the definition of marriage. It's not because we're a bunch of prudes. <laughs> it's because marriage um, goes to the heart of representing what God's relationship with us is. And you don't mess with that, particularly since it's from Genesis to Revelation. One of the places in the Bible where the relationship between husband and wife is used to describe the relationship between God and man actually is, is in Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 5 says, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. We'll get, to, we'll get there eventually. It says, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, but that she should be holy and without blemish. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and you. So in the Song of Solomon, same thing uh, there. Paul's really drawing from that kind of, what would you call it, typology, that that those symbols, that representation used throughout uh, the Bible in Ephesians. But in Song of Solomon, there's a progression of what the woman thinks about all this, that the king has asked her to be his bride. And this woman, she was uh, what you would call, for lack of a better term, she was just a, 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 work, a working girl, a working class girl. That's who she was. And the book begins in Song of Solomon with her speaking to him. And she says this, Do not look upon me because I am dark. Because the sun has tanned me. My my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So um, at that time... uh, Tan was not a good thing. You know, this goes in and out of fashion, tans, okay? I remember when I was in high school, man, you had to have a dark, dark tan if you were cool, you know? But uh, at other times in history, it's been the exact opposite. And uh, this was one of them. And she was a worker in the field. She's ashamed because what is the king doing uh, choosing someone like me? And, and she says, I've been a keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard, it says, I have not kept, and me, meaning I'm a mess. I'm a mess. My life's a mess, and my body's a mess, and I look like a mess. I'm a mess. And so what was Solomon's response to that? Uh, he responds to that by telling her, O oh, fairest among women, O oh, most beautiful uh, woman, Uh, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, he says in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. And then he just goes on, and man, he really lays it on. Because this woman, uh, she's not convinced. She's incredibly insecure. What's going on here? Me? Me? And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. (laughs) Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are 
are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Your two breasts are like two fawns. It's the Bible. I'm reading the Bible now. Okay. Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. You are beautiful, my love, and there is no spot in you. You have ravished my heart, my sister, and my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister and my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfume than all spices. Your lips, oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And so, he's just laying it on. He's just laying it on. And as the book goes on, it describes more and more the woman's response to all this. And, and one of the things that happens uh, that you see, I mean, she's just, she's filled with anxiety. She's filled with confusion. She's insecure. She just can't believe all of this. And there's this sense that she is in overdrive trying to better herself and live up to the things she's finding out about herself that she's been chosen as, as the king's uh, bride. Uh, and the king is thinking she's, she's beautiful and she gets so overcome with insecurity that there are times in the, in the book that she, she just goes, she turns into a mad woman, a crazy woman, paranoid. In chapter 5 of Song of Solomon, she literally goes out at, 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 in the middle of the night, one or two in the morning, and looking for the king. Uh, because she's just, and, and she's going from person to person in the middle of the night, just shaking them. Where is, where is my love? And it says at one point, one of the people hit her. It's like, who is this? I'm being accosted. And she's literally, she, she's losing her mind because she can't believe that's uh, happening. But he just doesn't stop. He doesn't say, oh, well, this person, I, now I find out who, who she's really about. She's the nut, man. I, I'm getting out of here. She do, he doesn't do that. And, and he goes on in chapter 6. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fares the moon, clears the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And then he just goes all out. How beautiful are your feet and your sandals? Wow. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel, he's even talking about her belly button. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. 
And then this one is what's incredible. Your waist is like a heap of wheat. I, you know, she's, he's going to draw her out of her insecurity uh, no matter what. And what is so wonderful, and remember, this whole thing is all a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and you. And what's wonderful, as the, as the book goes on, she's, she's, she's more and more accepting, she's more and more secure, until finally, in chapter 7, verse 10, she declares... I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. It took her a while to figure out and believe that she was his, but it took her a lot longer to actually think, that his desire was for her. That, that's what was really hard. But by the end of the book, this is what she's declaring. I am my beloved's and his desires for me. So the whole book is a picture of what happens in the life of a man or woman who enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ. When a man or woman first recognizes that they are hopeless without God, that they will never be fulfilled without God, and worse, that they have lived their life in opposition to God and they deserve the judgment of God. When a man or woman first um, uh, have their eyes open to the love of God, that God so loved them that he sent his only son Jesus to die for them, and that now Jesus Christ is knocking at the door of their heart and saying, I want to come into your life. I want to come and have an everlasting relationship with you. Uh, well, no, you can't come in. I have to clean up my vineyard. I'm the keeper of my vineyard, but I, I, I'm the keeper of the vineyard, but I haven't kept it well. I got to get my house in order. I got to clean myself up. Jesus is saying, No, I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Just open it up. I accept you and your house just the way you are. All you have to do is open up the door and let me in. And so the man or woman lets them in and they begin a lifelong relationship with him. But at the beginning of the relationship with him, they struggle. Just like the Shulamite woman, they're going to be busting their brain out thinking all right, now I'm in this relationship with God. Now I am a Christian. So what am I supposed to do now? And you just rush around. I do this. I, I got to do this. I got to do that. I gotta, and, and, and there's like this frenzy. It's like the woman going through the streets of Jerusalem at 1 a.m. in the morning shaking people. This is like a crazy picture here. This is a Christian? What? What's God's response to that? What is his response when, um, you know, we come into a relationship with him or maybe we've been in a relationship with him, but, but man, we've drifted away or, or, or we, we've backslidden and we're in this really bad place and, and we're going, oh, so what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? God's response to that, just as we discussed last week, 
God's response is, let's not talk about what you're supposed to do. There will be a time for that. Let's not talk about what you're supposed to do. Let's talk about who you are. And that's what happens in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He does this very thing. He basically says at the beginning of the letter, Ephesians, he says, I'm going to start this letter not by telling you what to do, but telling you who you are. So listen, at the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, at the very moment you open up the door of your heart and say, Jesus, come in, be the king of my life, at that moment, at the moment that you did that, the Bible says Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, comes into your life and instantly... In the eyes of God, you are utterly, totally, completely different. Unrecognizable from what you were just seconds before. That your heart by faith asked them in. But we have an incredibly hard time believing that. So Paul begins this letter not telling the Ephesians what they need to know. Uh, what, what, or rather, what they, what they need to know about what to do, but, but he begins it by telling what they need to know about who they are. And so um, that's what we began with, um, with last week. And so in your bulletins, um, I have put, uh, or we have put, the, uh, the ushers have put the same chart, and I'm going to put the chart up actually now on the, on the projection screen. But I've I've given just a handout here of what we put up on the projection screen last week. And this is, this is what, what Paul does. He, he begins this letter telling them who they are. Now in chapter 2, what he's going to do is he's going to present a contrast. He's going to put in chapter 2, this is what you were. Seconds before, by faith, you asked Jesus into your, in, into your life. This is what you were. And so, chapter 1, verse 1, he begins, he says, you are in him. He begins by saying to them, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in uh, Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. You contrast that with chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12 says what? At that time, meaning prior to asking Jesus in, you were without Christ. So, uh, you were without Christ, and then it goes on to say at the end of the verse, and without God in the world. So who are you? You are in Him. Who were you? You were without Christ in God. Next row, it says, you are, who are you? You are blessed with every spiritual Blessing. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But if you go to chapter 2 and contrast that, what you were, you were dead 
in trespasses and sin. Chapter 2, verse 1 says. Verse 4 says, just as he chose us in him, or just as he chose you. Who are you? You are chosen. Who were you? Chapter 2, verse 12. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of uh, promise, having no hope. <laughs> so you went, to being, uh, from be, you went from having no hope to chosen by God. End of verse 4 of chapter 1 says, You are holy and blameless before him in love. Holy and blameless before him in love. And we talked about that last week. Just as Solomon told the Shulamite woman, he said, you are perfect and you are without Christ. Or rather, you're without spot. The moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are the same way. You are without spot. You are holy and you are blameless before him in, in love. Now, why is that? It's not because of anything we've done, but Jesus led a spotless life for us. And at the time we ask him into our, into our hearts, he credits that spotlessness to us. So, verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says, Now in Christ you're holy and without blame before him. Believe it, believe it, believe it. Just like Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Verse 5, next row. You are adopted as sons and daughters. In contrast to verse 3 of chapter 2, which says you were sons and daughters of wrath. Wrath means anger. You literally, before Christ, before asking Him into your life, you lived under the cloud of God's judgment and wrath. You were a son of wrath, a daughter of wrath. The next one, verse 6 of chapter 1 says, uh, you are the praise of the glory of God. You are the praise of the glory of God, meaning, and this is really hard to get our minds wrapped around this, when people look at you, when the angels of heaven look at you, they, they, uh, they erupt into praise in heaven, the Bible says. That's who you are. So remember Solomon speaking to the Shulamite woman. You are perfect. You're blameless. And, 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 and you know, some of the places in there in Song of Solomon, not only me, but there's, there, there's actually a, a chorus joining in with Solomon telling the woman how beautiful she is. Just like the angels of heaven. Look, when they say you, when you are in Christ. And finally, it says at the end of verse 6 of chapter 1, you are accepted in the beloved. The beloved represents the church. And I mean when we first go into a church. As we said last week, so many times we look around and we're like, look at all these perfect people. Um, not only are we greatly and sorely deceived when we're thinking that because there are no perfect people, but, but it's true that we're actually accepted there regardless of what's on our record. 
And so, in contrast to chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, you were a stranger, you were a foreigner. So, so, so prior to Christ, in a very real way, you, you weren't part of the people of God. You weren't in the beloved. You weren't like those people because you didn't have Christ. And so, hey, put this on your refrigerator. Because it's, you know, that expressions, you, you are what you eat. Well, there's some truth to that. But really, you are, you are who God says you are. Put it on your mirror while you're looking at those extra pounds or whatever, or those wrinkles, uh, you know. And, and, and th- this is who you are in the eyes of God. And so our problem is, our problem is, and we've discussed this, is that we believe more of what the world tells us about who we are than who God tells us who we are. So we have a mom or a dad or an uncle or an aunt or a third grade teacher or a neighborhood bully or a psychologist, a psychiatrist. They tell us we're, we're ADD. I took my own test of ADD a couple days ago. When I was going through this lesson, I'm a whole, holy cow, I'm moderate to severe ADD. I never knew this. No, I'm going to go to what the Bible says I am. Or, or we're told we're OCD. Or we're told we're MAD. We're just mad. We're angry. Or we're, you know, we're told we're SAD, you know, sad. Or, or we're told we're nobody. Nobody. You're nobody. And, we, and, and what do we do? We carry that label well on into adulthood and maybe into the grave. Don't let, Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1, and the whole Bible is saying, Song of Solomon is saying the same thing. Don't let the world define you. Don't even let the people who love you define you. Let God define who you are. So, that leads to a question that begs a question. How did all that happen? How did I go from MAD, OCD, SAD, nobody, to this description right here? In Him, in Christ Jesus, blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen, holy and blameless, adopted as a son of God. When people, when the angels of heaven look at me, I am to the praise of God's glory. That's a crazy thing. Accepted in the beloved. How in the world did that happen? The answer is in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. That is how all that stuff happened. That's how we went from being, uh, conducting ourselves according to the lusts of the flesh to fourth row there or fifth row, one, two, three, fourth row, to, to being holy and blameless. We were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
verse 7. So I want to talk about this word redemption. The word redemption, tragically, today, is a church word. For the most part. It's a church word. It's a religious term. Some of us who were incredibly old, you know, in the 70s, we collected green, green stamps. Can I see your white hair if you remember green stamps? And you, and you and, and raise your head and, and you went into a redemption center. But man, all that's a, you know, a, a thing of the past. Now they give you, what, gasoline at Shell or whatever it is that they're giving you at the grocery store. But redemption is like a church word. It's a religious word. Not so at the time that Paul wrote Ephesians. Everybody knew what that word was, redemption. And the reason was, there was the, the word for redemption, it's a word in Greek called lutru. It had to do, it was a, it, it had to do really with the slave, excuse me, the slave trade. And at the time this letter was written, 30 to 40 percent of the Roman world, at least in the area we now know as Italy, were slaves. And there was a very active slave trade. And that word lutro or redemption is what happened when a slave was up for sale or whatever, or maybe he or she wasn't up for sale, and someone came and paid the price for their freedom. That was called lutro or redemption. It wasn't a religious term. Today, you go out outside of the four walls of this uh, conference center, people that have never even heard of redemption most of the time, they go, huh? Redemption? You know? At least, again, at least if they're under 40. You know? but, uh, uh, it, it, and so, but, but then it was, a, it was a very common term. Two to three million slaves in the area known as Italy uh, and this was a common thing. In fact, a slave could buy their own freedom. That was rather rare in, in the South where slavery was common in the United States just because of, of oppressive laws that they would pass. But uh, not so uh, in the Roman Empire. You could save enough money. But most, uh, a lot of the time, it was someone who came and purchased your freedom. And this um, this happened, and it was not unusual for it to happen. So it, 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 really, uh, it, it really stirred up imagery in the mind of people who heard this verse, who read it, where it says, in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. Now, Jesus Christ said, you were born in this world a slave to sin. From the time you came out of your mother's womb, you were a slave to sin. Actually, I can put up this, um, this verse here. This is John chapter 8, verse 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, who commits sin? Everybody. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, 
uh, Paul says there, men are servants of sin. In, in, verse, uh, in, in, in chapter 8, it, it says men are in bondage to, to corruption or in bondage to their sin. That's just what we are. Now, Romans chapter 6 says, once you invite Jesus into your, into your heart, you, you're freed from that slavery. It says anyone who has died with Jesus is now free with Jesus, Romans chapter 6. But you are a slave to sin prior to doing that. Now, sin demands a price, the Bible says. Sin demands a price in order to release its victim. What is that price? Anybody? Death. The Bible says the wages, the price of sin is death. So in order to purchase sinners, men and women, children who sin from the slavery of sin, there must be death. And that's what the blood of Jesus did. His blood was poured out on the cross as a payment, a penalty for sin. Now, if you are new to church and the Bible, you may be coming in and saying, blood? The blood of Jesus frees me? That's really creepy and primitive. When I graduated from college, that was my, 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 my thing. It all seemed so primitive before I became a Christian. Blood of Jesus? Why? Because of the death of someone on a cross? Why should that have? That just seems unfair. That should have anything to do with my eternity. But that word blood, it, it, all it means, and of course all, it, it means a lot, but, but it, it means the life. We're going through the book of Genesis, and I believe tonight we're going to be talking about this. The life of man is in the blood. That's what it means. That's what the blood of Jesus means. It means his life. The life of the Son of God redeemed you, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so, the blood of Jesus. And Paul, he's going to plead with them, and he's going to plead with them, and he's going to plead with them. To accept us. And God's goal for you, every single one of you in this room, is that as soon as possible in your walk with God, that you are able to declare, I am God's, I am Jesus Christ, and his desire is for me. Don't put the blood of Jesus on trial. I heard this story about um, a church. I don't know where this church was, but a, a, a woman came to Jesus in this church, and she had lived a life of, of prostitution, of, of serious drug addiction, this kind of thing. And she gives her life to Jesus. A few years went by, and she's, she's really growing with God, and, and who falls in love with her? but the pastor's son. And um, it turned into like a big deal. I mean, you know, of, of course, the blood of Jesus 
It washes away people's sin. But the pastor's son can't be married married to a woman who used to be a prostitute. And, and there was a meeting that came by, and, and, and it was just emotionally charged meeting, and um, the, the woman herself was there, and, and, and she began to cry as, as things about her past were, were brought up. And the pastor's son stood up and said, Listen, uh, my fiancé, she was her fiancé by then, her past is not what's on trial here. What's, what, what's on trial here is the blood of Jesus. And so why do I bring that up? Because it's important that you, you embrace this in your heart, not only about yourself, but about others. You know, I've had to work through this whole thing. I got four daughters. I got a son who's married and four daughters. None of them are married yet. I've already had to wrestle through this whole thing and settle it in my heart. What if my daughter gets engaged with someone with a really gory history, with a, with, with a record of gore and ugliness. What am I going to do? I've had to settle it in my heart. I, get either, I, I can't be up there preaching something that I don't act out in my life. I've already settled this in my heart. Now, obviously, it, it's important that, that um, any man... Uh, married to a woman or a woman married to a man have a life where their faith is tested and, and, and this type of thing? Absolutely. But the question is, for ourselves and others, are we going to embrace? Are we going to embrace the truth that the blood of Jesus really does cleanse us from all sin? And and it no not only does it save us, it, it, it also um, gives us the power to grow. The, in First John chapter 1, we read, walk in the light even as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. Now, that's a mystery that I don't totally understand, but every time in your life where there's some darkness in your life uh, or you've allowed some darkness in your life and you come right back into the light, the Bible says the blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus, cleanses you from all sin. Sin. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 uh, says this. You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or from your aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The devotional writer I read every morning for the last 10 years, C.H. Bogoski, says this, How incredibly abominable is our sin that it took the Son of God to take it away. And, 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 and that's true, but he did. He did. The Son of God died and he bled for your sins. And so, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And I'm going to close with verse 8, which says, which he made to abound toward us 
in all wisdom and prudence. In other words, in the almighty wisdom of God and, and the love of God, this grace, this blood, this redemption, it says, abounds towards us. Abounds. And the word picture I'd like to leave you with, with that word, abounds, it's, it's again, if you do the word study there, what the word really means, it, it, it's, it's kind of as a fountain overflowing or, you know, I grew up on the ocean, um, waves that just keep on coming in. The, the, the waves of redemption, the waves of grace, the waves of his blood, his life, they just keep coming and they do not stop, verse 8, which he made to abound toward us. So I'm going to call the worship team up uh, right now and we are going to close this uh, service right now, but I important that we continue to reflect on this. Yeah, put this up, this little half sheet of paper somewhere over the over your door post or, or on your refrigerator, on your mirror, and just be chewing on this. So if you can um, if you can stand for a closing worship song and if you've been asked to pray, if you could please come up. If you've been asked to pray I am going to invite you at this time, I'm going to invite you, if you have never in your life come to the place where you've invited Jesus to come in and be the king, all it takes is a prayer of faith. All it takes is a prayer of faith for in an instant, God's view of you, His eyes towards you, goes from something that is, quite frankly, it's, it's very fearful being a child of God's wrath, God's anger. But by asking Him your life, you can go from that to being an adopted son, a child of God. If you've never done that, just at this time, uh, please come up. And, uh, and pray with us. It's a simple prayer of faith. You know, when we, I just refer back to that chart of that huge difference between what we were and what we've become. If you're in this room and if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, with all humility, I say this. We have two things up, up on you. Two things up on you. One is that our past has been dealt with. Has your past been dealt with? Has your, our past has been dealt with by Jesus Christ, blood on the cross. Has your past been dealt with? Don't wait until you die and are standing at the judgment seat of God to try to deal with your past, to try to justify it, to try to argue it. That's number one. There are two things up on you. One is that our past has been dealt with. But the second thing is that um, the second thing is that we have hope. And hope in the Bible is not like I hope I win the lottery. Hope in the Bible is a sure expected end. If you haven't asked Jesus into your uh, into your life, what is your hope? Are you hoping that the government will make things safer around us, better around us? Are you hoping that 
Um, your taxes will go down? Are you, are you hoping in a real good retirement? Or are you hoping that um, when you die that you'll be at the judgment seat of, of Christ and you'll be sort of weighed in a balance and hey, if you're, you're, your life's works are a little more than uh, uh, better than they are bad that he'll let you in? Is that yet your hope? You're really, you're okay with that? What I suggest right now is settling the issue and, and just coming up and, and praying and saying, yes, Jesus, be my king. I want to settle all these issues. I want my past to be dealt with and I want my future. I want that hope in something that's secure, in something that God says is secure. So as we, uh, as we worship, uh, come on up. or f- Listen, if you have anything you'd like to pray about, don't leave the service today uh, anxious about anything. But come up and we can pray about it.
Sing and pray all these words in your name, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.